one thing that happened like in our region the breakup started with a war it was on tv it was on the radio it was also the conversations you know among my parents so it was like in the air that something is gonna happen but then you realize that it's already happened it wasn't just the war the whole supply system of the soviet union broke up overnight the supply chain was perfectly designed you know to make sure everyone has a job and everyone has you know like means to live when i look back at it and try to kind of just understand what was happening there i i just have no idea how we survived it starts with just taking that leap man you have to work hard you have to be incredibly smart choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it doesn't matter how badly you got beat this out be kind be kind be kind become a better person a better leader a better business I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Overnight, Yiva Hussein's world turned upside down. Just under 3,000 miles away in Russia, a coup against Mikhail Gorbachev sealed the fate of the Soviet Union. To the west, as the Berlin Wall crumbled into the dirt, the breakdown of the USSR signified freedom and celebration. For Yiva, though, it signaled uncertainty, unlike she had ever experienced before. But her story doesn't start or end there. Yiva is the founder of the learning app Solo Learn, a company that would see user growth fly from thousands to millions within a couple of years. What started off as a small programming boot camp is now one of the most successful code learning programs, boasting 27 million users this year. But to understand where Solo Learn is now and how it got started, we have to step back in time before the collapse of the Berlin Wall, back to America during the reign of the Soviet Union. If I were to describe the Soviet era, like in one word, and Armenia was part of the Soviet Union, it will be stability, you know? Everything was the same. You were kind of born in a country with a very predetermined, you know, paths. So it was equal both in terms of your like social status, but also in terms of opportunity. What did it look like as a kid growing up in that environment? I think the big part of the Soviet school was you have to work hard, you have to be very humble, and just, you know, unless you're sure that you're kind of 100% right, don't speak up. You know, so it was kind of the mentality that would kind of make that empire, I think, sustain for so many years. Because at the end of the day, you didn't have the freedom to go and do something crazy. You know, opening a business was forbidden. Like my, my, my dad was running something from our apartment. What was he running? Do you remember how it started? We had this like clothes factory in our apartment in the beginning. But then over time, it has become a computer training center before everything started to break down, like maybe when you were like 12 or 11, do you remember like any story um, that symbolized the values that the, your country was teaching you and, and maybe the values of your family differing or the same as that? The values were all right. Like on the ideological kind of, you know, level, it was all like be good human, you know, help elderly like that's the thing we were taught in schools like over and over again you know just be patient you know just work hard so in terms of the values it wasn't wrong but it was wrong in terms of what happened in reality and also since it was a closed world we always dreamed of the world outside it you know so that was my kind of like if if, if i can kind of thing of the childhood memory it was always you know escape like go see France you know or virtual Microsoft it was it was on my like it was one of my childhood dreams because it was tech and it was Microsoft you know like outside the boundaries that we were kind of born and lived in how did you even find that dream well it's it's the come on there are conversations there are books that were kind of Prohib like prohibited, but we would still, you know, copy them at a time and, you know, read it. We would listen to all the kind of, you know, hits of the time, you know, the, uh, yeah, like the rock, like 
they're all bands and, and that was kind of like forbidden too, but we had this, you know, cassette at a time. So that was a big deal of, you know, making copies of the same cassette and basically everyone had the same playlist, <laughs> but we would very much cover the top charts, you know, in the US, UK. So when did it all start to break down? Because it's like what we're describing is like you were still, you still had knowledge of the world. You were educated of like the West and maybe had a rosier picture of what that looked like, but you were still confined by the, the country that you grew up in. Yeah. So one thing that happened like in our region, the breakup started with a war. So something unheard of. Like for us, it was kind of, you know, we all were brothers, right? Like 15 countries in the Soviet Union and everyone was a brother, like, it, and, and there were no nationalities basically. So we were all Soviets and somehow the breakup started with kind of nationalistic, you know, movements that ended up in kind of a pretty long lasting war, like between Armenia and Azerbaijan at a time. Do you remember the moment where you heard it? It was on TV. It was on the radio. It was also the conversations, you know, among my parents. So it was like in the air that something is going to happen. But then you realize that it's already happening, like in a way. Like it wasn't in the capital city where I was. So, but then it was in the same country. And basically, you know, like people we knew would go and fight. That was insane. But then there was the second part of the insane that it wasn't just the war. The whole supply system of the Soviet Union broke up overnight. Because the way it worked, we would produce something in Armenia and then another country would consume it. And then another country would, you know, produce something and the fourth country would consume it. So the supply chain was perfectly designed, you know, to make sure everyone has a job and everyone has, you know, like means to leave. And then overnight, the whole thing broke up. So you had PhDs who would, you know, clean the streets. Or you had engineers, like a lot of people migrated, whoever, you know, was smart enough, I guess, at that time, you know, just to like, or, or had an opportunity to leave the country. But then whoever stayed, it was kind of a, you know, crazy transformation from, you know, I'm worth something and I, I have a job and I'm kind of a decent human being to, you know, not knowing what's there for you, like, tomorrow. What happened to your family? I mean, so my dad was entrepreneurial, likely. So he kind of, you know, just started this computer literacy. At a time, people were learning, you know, Word, Excel, a little bit of Microsoft Access. And that was the only way to find a decent job, in a way. So it had a lot of demand. But since electricity like, was a problem at a time, he could only do it at home because he could have an alternative kind of, you know, like power supply line. At a time, like I was around, like I think I was 18 years old. So I remember like going to the, their place was kind of, you know, like the best part of the day because it was warm. <laughs> they always had food and they had light. Like you could even watch TV, you know, or like if you had to do, you could shower, you know. Like, so these things became luxury overnight. Do you remember how you were feeling during that time? When I look back at it and like, you know, try to kind of just understand what was happening there, I, I just have no idea how we survived, honestly. Like it, it's very hard, but at the time it was, a, it just was the reality, you know, and we had to cope with it in terms of coping like what did you invest your time into like what were you exploring what were you discovering with the crazy times i think my my life was also a little crazy so i managed to fall in love and get pregnant when i was you know like around 18 years old wow like i i was also studying at the university because I, i've always been competitive and there was this faculty that the brand new faculty that just opened up that would teach international economics and that had you know that was the hardest to get it so i decided i'm gonna do it so i'm gonna get there so i was studying to get into the university i was pregnant at the same time you know very early days of the pregnancy which I felt really miserable about, and it was kind of, you know, dark and, and, you know, like basically, and everyone was kind of, you know, just trying to survive at the same time. So 
it was pretty tense. But again, like, I don't remember being, you know, over pessimistic or, you know, just feeling that, you know, oh man, like, I'm not gonna make it through or we're not gonna make it through. So somehow there was always this optimism and maybe that was because kind of, you know, the walls broke down finally. So there was a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of like, we're very far away from it, but then maybe, you know, there is a window of opportunity to do things differently. And that was a dream for every kid, you know, in the Soviet Union, especially in Armenia, because the ideology worked much stronger in bigger countries like Russia, you know, etc. So many of them believed it. In Armenia, no one believed it. Believed what? The Soviet ideology, you know, the greatness of the empire, etc. So we were more, you know, just trying to find the shortcuts to live our lives and, you know, just, just be different, a little different, at least, you know, from everybody else. As you're thinking about how do I provide for my child, what's the path that you're creating for yourself? The plan was to land a job, like basically any job in parallel with the studies. So, so I could kind of do both things at the same time. And I was, I think this was the, the third year of the university, I got a full-time job. This was the World Bank Center for Development Assistance. So after the Soviet Union broke up, like a lot of development assistance came into the country. And like, this was basically the center that did all the development assistance programs. So I landed a job there as a receptionist and I was making $50 a month. $50 a month? Because the inflation was so crazy, like after the breakup and, you know, like the economic ties kind of, you know, were ruined and $50 a month was enough. What was the job like for you? I did like small things here and there, but this was the first full-time job. And it was a lot of fun, actually, because like people I've worked with were smart and young. So there was a lot of kind of, you know, like getting together, you know, just doing fun stuff. But I also was learning a lot. So that's when I realized that, you know, you can learn more from people around you than, you know, in a classical university setup. So like you had this dream of wanting to work at Microsoft, you're working at a receptionist, but like, how do you start going towards tech a little bit more? So when I was 22, like that was kind of, you know, the first job, right? Like the World Bank Development Assistance programs. And that was time when Armenia kind of has, like started to regain hope because, you know, the electricity crisis was over, you know, the war was over in a way. So the prospects of democracy, you know, and like the bright future were in the year, kind of, you know, so I didn't want to leave Armenia at a time. Like I was thinking like what to do next. And I spent in that center around six years, I think, in different jobs because I was kind of promoted from one to another. In those six years, you were feeling pretty good about where Armenia was going as a country. I was feeling pretty good about where Armenia was going as a country. And like, I had one of the best jobs in the country. Wow. So that was like the other thing that like very few, you know, were making 250 or like $400 a month. Did you feel wealthy at that time? How did you feel and what were you still yearning for? I didn't feel wealthy. Like we couldn't dream of wealthy after all we've been through. But I felt middle class. I'm not rich, but I can lead a decent life. I think that was the $400 a month in Armenia at a time. So, which was much better than, you know, a lot of people just lost their job and had nothing. Especially older generation, they were in the worst situation because it's harder to upskill, it's harder to reskill, you know, whatever they knew wasn't relevant. So it was like a much bigger problem. Like for the young people, like we were more flexible and adaptable in terms of, you know, what to learn next and, you know, where to work and, and like the international world of, you know, the development assistance world, like be it the World Bank or UN or, you know, the U.S. government, like those were the places where you would make like the most money. And you would also be exposed to a lot of kind of expertise that like wasn't accessible to us in the past. 
when does your next like big switch happen as you climb the ranks in this company? I went to the Netherlands to do my MBA. I just wanted to study overseas, like see what the experience is. I wanted to leave overseas as well. Uh, this was my like very first time I left the Soviet Union, you know, like territory in a way, because we traveled internally a lot, but we, like this was the first time I could afford to go to a country that was outside the Soviet Union. What was that like? I remember I was carrying this huge suitcase at the airport and every policeman stopped me. So probably there was something on my face. I was lost or maybe <laughs> I was kind of, you know, like non-confident, not confident. Like this is the first time, you know, me traveling internationally. So I had to open that suitcase like for three times, I think, like in a matter of an hour, like three different policemen stopped me and where they, or maybe the suitcase itself was kind of, you know, very weird. Suspicious, yeah. It didn't even have the wheels. It was, you know, the one that you would carry like this. Yeah. So I just remember that, you know, like first kind of like entering the airport, like the craziness of the airport and then a policeman after policeman like stopping me and asking me to open the suitcase and I just had nothing, like just clothes basically. But that was funny. And so when you get to the Netherlands, what do you encounter? My class was very international. So we only had one or two Dutch people in the air. Wow. So for me, the biggest shock was, you know, the number of nationalities and basically the diversity of cultures that I encountered. Like for me, it was an eye-opening experience. And like it, it was probably one of the best experiences of my life in terms of, you know, learning so much about the world that you become a very different person. Like kind of all your value system breaks up and then you rebuild it from scratch because you just become a part of a much bigger world, which is so much richer than what you have seen, you know, up to that moment. What are the values that you started to have? Armenia is a very homogeneous country so we're very much used to doing things certain way like it can be good or bad and but that's not the thing like since you're surrounded by armenians and then like the bigger world was you know the soviet countries with their own kind of ways of doing things your world is very limited how does it make you operate differently in the world there is something to learn from every person in the world like no matter how successful they are, like no matter how smart they are, there is like something small that you can kind of learn from anyone, like literally anyone. And that wasn't the case like of the Soviet education. Soviet education is, you know, you want to be the smartest, you know, always. So that kind of the change to like not being the smartest kid in the room, but rather, you know, just be someone who can build teams and kind of, you know, find strengths in different people. So like together it becomes an unbeatable power of, yeah. it's a great balance. And then like more diversity, the better. And and I've experienced it. It's not that I've read about it, you know, in the article. Yeah. Do you remember like anyone that you met there that challenged an existing world belief? I, I can't think of like any specific, like one big challenge, but that. I had a lot of friends from Latin America and one thing they were all very good at is take the life as it is like just just be chill about it you know just be cool about it but it changed you know a lot of perspective in terms of not being that heavyweight in a way so going from the Netherlands maybe now we can move closer to the Microsoft transition the project itself was to kind of identify areas where like this money will go basically it could be an infrastructure project it could be an education project we were brainstorming for like weeks you know to try to come up with something impactful for the country obviously like promoting ideas let's invest in education you know or like let's do this or that like the U.S. has the greatest university kind of education in the world so what can we do along those lines 
And then somehow you go to the high level negotiation and your prime minister has no clue like what was discussed. You know, he doesn't, and, and he brings up a project like infrastructure, let's be build the roads of Armenia, you know, and then we're like, oh my God, <laughs> like so much work. So like the post-Soviet countries kind of lead, like government, like management was so broken because everything was starting to assemble. Like we didn't have the institutional knowledge of how to run a country in a new setup. So there was like all this work that was done by your team and then the person who's in charge of making the decision was like... He would just come up and then he would make a decision because he didn't have a better idea inside at, at, at the moment. Was that frustrating for you? I think I got used to it. Like it, it was expected because you kind of know it's not going to you know, be accepted easily and you're ready to put a lot of energy to kind of change things a little bit, you know. At at a time I believe that, you know, even an incremental change is better than no change. Right. I think very differently now. I, I I'm very careful about the amount of energy you put into something and how much impact you are seeing. But at that time, you know, every little week was a big win. That's kind of like government work. It's slow, it's slow and very arduous. I know. While you were at this agency how were you introduced or or how was like the world of tech kind of in front of your your eyes? So my husband started a big tech movement in Armenia. So Armenia had you know very strong engineering tradition. And although most of it broke up, the people still were there. So there was this group of friends. One of them was my husband, four people, not all, not many. And they just got together, I think. They were probably drinking somewhere, you know, and just having conversations like, let's just, you know, just like see what's out there and like build tech industry in Armenia. And it turns out they were serious. <laughs> so they kind of did research and they found out that there were many small hidden outsourcing tech companies in Armenia. So many of them weren't even registered, but this was like, Four or five people out of kitchen, you know, working for a German company, you know, for a French company or for a U.S. company doing outsourcing work. Like the basics were there. So they started kind of putting together different programs that would like, first of all, kind of develop the skills that are needed for the area, like tie the younger generation with the older kind of engineering minds that we still had in the country and in parallel they started working on bringing in multinational companies into Armenia just because we had the minimum kind of skill set and no one believed them. Like no one believed that Armenians could get the skills needed to compete like and and take jobs within these multinational tech companies? That tech could become one of the biggest sectors in Armenia which is the case today. Wow. That that would become kind of, you know, and then the outsourcing companies like basically gradually kind of grown into more product companies and, and like solar is just one example, but there are many more that were born, you know, as a result of kind of tech becoming a big thing. And I was always jealous because his life was so interesting and mine was so boring and slow. What was interesting about his life my day was like pretty boring, you know, you go to work, you have your coffee, you write a lot of papers, 80% of which are not going to get anywhere in your 20% get somewhere you're very happy, at least, you know, some of your creation was heard and you kind of never know what the outcome. And I tried to make it interesting by, you know, just introducing some innovations into the projects that I managed. But again, like in, in a government setup, it's just a system that you cannot break on your own. It's just not possible. His life was all about brainstorming, just talking to interesting people, finding Armenians overseas who are kind of working in cool companies and, you know, just strategizing around projects that can like, be beneficial for both sides. Like, a lot of entrepreneurship, they, they opened the first, like, very small, but like a VC fund in Armenia at a time, you know, with their support, kind of, they got some funding from the government and then some private funding and they, they were talking startups, you know, it was just 
a very different, exciting world where you would create something versus you're just this small particle in a bigger, you know, like machine system. And maybe the machine's not even just, moving yeah, at all. And the, <laughs> exactly. And even if they are moving and maybe there is purpose and maybe they are great, but you as an individual, like has nothing to contribute. Like if you leave, nothing is going to change. So you wanted to actually have a difference or uh, have a little bit or at least be part of something that was a little faster moving. So how do you start to move towards Microsoft? One of the projects that they had, and it was at the four people team, you know, anymore, it was kind of a big, like a number of big companies, you know, that were doing, you know, tons of projects. And we had some multinationals enter Armenia already and Microsoft was one of them. So as part of like Armenia, Microsoft's kind of cooperation, they, decided to open a Microsoft Innovation Center in Armenia. So the name was cool, but no one knew, you know, what, what the center would do. And they were hiring for the, like, basically CEO of the center. And I applied and got a job. So I was exploring kind of, you know. The this... CEO of the center? Of the center, but the center was nothing. It was just the name and, like, no idea what it was going to do, honestly. You got a CEO position at, I mean, pretty sick that you got a CEO position at Microsoft. In reality, it was a center that had no budget, no employees. It had a page of, you know, like a menu, basically, that like, these are the things you can do. You can become an excellent center and just showcase Microsoft technology. Or you could become a training center and, you know, do Microsoft technology trainings. Or you could do something with startups, but it was back in 2010. So, you know, like, especially in that region, it wasn't, you know, very clear. And they had these centers all over the world. And every center was different because the CEO, like, that had no money and no power, no employees, <laughs> would come up with, you know, his or her own recipe of how to make it work. So how did you start cooking up some, some recipes yourself? You get this job, you have... I guess like you kind of just make up whatever you want. So what did you make up? I was like, we'll be a startup accelerator. You know, the first, the best startup accelerator in the region. We'll work with the students. So we rented our office in the biggest technological university. And like, that's where kind of our ideas come from. I had a very good network due to my husband, like in the country. So I can bring like anyone to mentor, you know, like anyone to help out. But in reality, like we had, we needed money. Just to, to do the things that we liked to do. We were three people at a time, so I hired two more. And yeah, and, and we were kind of strategizing, etc. And we applied to U.S. government for a grant at a time. And we got it. How much was the grant for? It was around $900,000, which was a lot of money, you know? That's a good amount of money. That was a very good amount of money, like for a start. Going from making $50 a month to handling $900,000, not not too bad. Not bad at all. Like, that was kind of, oh my gosh, yeah. If you just give, like, a, like a, a person with an idea a little bit of money, they could actually do a lot with it. So what were some of the things that you began to fund? So, like, a lot of this money went into, you know, the setup costs, but we started working with different groups of students, you know, ideating, and, because this was, like, new. People wouldn't come to you with ideas. You had to create an environment where ideas were born. So that was our very first challenge. We started creating an ecosystem in parallel to the five, six groups of students that we were working with. You made the transition from government work to like private sector. You're kind of having, having to like, you're, you're essentially creating your own startup, helping startups at this point within the, the ecosystem of Microsoft. But um, essentially like you're, you're on your own in a lot of ways. Like how did you make sure that you were like the things you were learning were, were being applied? Did you have any like structure or organization or, or anything like that? Or was it just like fly by the seat of your pants? It was totally hectic. You know, we were trying many different things with different products. You know, it's like a mobile game, you know, that's how we learned Google Analytics and, you know, how you track the success and how you talk to the users, kind of, you know, so that was the mobile game. Like for the agricultural solutions, it was more of a sales scheme, you know, because you need to sell it to the government because otherwise it's dead, kind of, you know. So 
it was like played by the kind of, you know, it was very situational. We didn't have any playbook. Like at the end, it probably, you know, just came together and become, you know, like the basics of building our own company. But at a time, it was very unstructured. We were just working very hard and we were very passionate. And we were trying to figure out things on the go a lot. And like even today, like it exists in our culture, like figure it out, like find a smart way to do it, you know? Yeah. So how did you move from doing these hackathons and developing the, uh, the, the environment by which people could learn and then create to actually like teaching people and like having like a, like some kind of coding bootcamp. We built the coding bootcamp just to sustain our passion for startups and acceleration because our money kind of was like we were spending <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't unlimited and we weren't making any money. You know, we built the bootcamp to kind of feed our startup passion. And these were very intensive four months programs that we did with the, like the biggest companies in Armenia at a time. They would kind of pay us for everyone that they hired out of the bootcamp. We scaled pretty fast because we had a couple of really good instructors in the beginning. And we like ourselves spent a lot of time like building the right curriculum, you know, just understanding what the companies need, etc. So another like on the go idea that kind of materialized something that helped us make money because we always had shorter term programs, but those were kind of one off. It was hard to get participants and you had to do a lot of, you know, PR, like why you're better than, you know, somebody else. But the four or five months programs were like 90% would get, would let the job in the end. So the demand was we had a 90% placement wow. rate for these bootcamps. And we were like scaling like crazy until we realized that, you know, like, you cannot scale beyond, you know, certain degree if, if this, if we're talking about in-person training, right? Because like there is a certain number of classrooms you can hire and a certain number of good instructors, which was a bigger blocker than classrooms. Because with every next instructor, kind of the quality got a little, you know, lower. So do you begin to think like, what would this idea look like if we, you know, ran with it on our own? Looking back, maybe that was the subconscious thinking at a time when we started solo learning. Like, to be very honest, we didn't directly tie it to our coding bootcamp success in our head. That was a big factor because we knew what we were doing. Can you tell me about the conversation that you had with, like, to, like creating solo learning? The Microsoft Innovation Center's kind of core team is kind of a founding team of solo learning. So we have worked with so many groups of students that have built so many products at some point that we didn't fully own. I think that was like a very important realization that, that you know, like we've grown up like enough, you know, we've played, <laughs> we've yeah. learned a lot, but now it's time to build something, you know, really. So we were very aligned on like, we need to own something and we need to build something, you know, great, something global and something, you know, that is not limited by, you know, physical space or, you know, country or a border or, so that was in the ear, but we weren't sure about what we were better in mobile because of the mobile game, maybe it was like pretty successful and we've learned a lot, but then we were just talking to one of our mentors at the time and he was like, why don't you guys do something in education? Because you're good at it. <laughs> and that's when it clicked, you know? That's huge. So we had the mobile first, we had the education. Now the challenge was like, how do you innovate? It's one thing to get that, that advice, but how do you actually act on that piece of advice and create the thing that you need to create? It was very situational. We didn't have any playbook. Like at the end, it probably, you know, just came together and become, you know, like the basics of building our own company. But at a time it was very unstructured. We were just working very hard and we were very passionate and we were trying to figure out things on the go a lot. What did that look like? Like, like this is, this is you venturing to the U S what is going through your mind on the plane ride? What are you like, do you have meetings set up? Are you nervous? Like what, like what the heck's going on? I'm very nervous. I have a couple of meetings set up through my, you know, advisors or, you know, just friends that I have in the U S because we are Armenians have friends everywhere. So that helps 
but I also have no clue what it's going to be like. I've never done it before. I don't speak the language. I don't know that. I mean, the terminology, like the VC language, I like, I've read some articles, obviously, but that's not enough, you know? And I have this weird exit, which was a big thing at a time because like US VC funds would invest in US companies. We were a US company. So we registered, we were like registered as a US company pro early days, but like, like my accent kind of, you know, like the way I talk, the way I do things like was very different and it wasn't necessarily kind of bad. It was just different, not something people would invest money in, you know? Yeah. So you get to the U S how do some of those meetings go? Do you remember any of those meetings going either amazing or terrible? Like what was the vibe? No, what I remember, they weren't amazing or terrible. All of them were very similar. In terms of these were very polite meetings of kind of, you know, I present what we have, the traction, you know, like create some interest. So there are some follow-up questions. But then my responses to the questions are probably not spot on. And, and, and then like, it always ends with an advice, like you need to talk to this person or, you know, like you should do this or you should do that. And in the beginning, I didn't realize it was a no. It was a polite no. Yeah. It was a polite no kind of, you know, just grow off. What were they telling you to do? And what were some of the questions that they asked that you felt you didn't, you weren't like well-prepared or didn't know the right answers to? One like area to explore was kind of how, like how big is the market? But we always operated under everyone needs to learn some code kind of, you know, hypothesis, which is coming through today, by the way. So finally, we're there when people are starting to realize that coding literacy kind of, you know, opens a lot of doors. But like my that that picture mind, like it, it was very weird at a time because it wasn't practical. It didn't have, you know, numbers that would prove, you know, the dream of everyone will learn to code eventually. Like there was not, like, we didn't do a lot of market research. So you were like basically operating more over, like off a of feeling and maybe some lived experience rather than like, this is the demographic data of people exactly. learning to code. It was the feeling and our numbers were good in terms of the user growth. Like the organic traction was really good. And that kind of was interesting, but not enough, you know, to invest. Was the trip a bust? And it was... We didn't get a single term sheet. So I went back to Armenia and we were like thinking about how to turn around another friends and family round, like until we figure things out. Seed stage investor kind of reached out, you know, unexpectedly. They found the app on the store and one of the partners was playing with it and they liked it so much and they were education focused investor that they kind of reached out. And we closed the round in a matter of months. Wait, 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 wait. So to back up, what was the what was the venture capital like? Like, 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 who was it? It was Learn Capital. They are like one of the, you know, the edtech focus that they have invested in pretty much every edtech company. I think that is like that you know of today. So one of their partners wanted to learn Python, I think, and they just, you know, downloaded the app on the App Store or Google Play, I don't remember which one. And they liked the product and they reached out and basically, you know, closed the round remotely back in 2016, which was unheard of. Do you think you were just lucky that that happened? Like, like what, what do you attribute to that success? I always think like that, you know, when you want something really badly and you try really hard, it pays off. Maybe not immediately, but I think this was one of those moments because we knew our product was great and we knew it was different and we knew it had a very big potential, but we, we just weren't, you know, a part of the kind of, you know, the entrepreneurial kind of society in Silicon Valley at a time. I've learned a lot. Like that trip wasn't kind of a loss, you know? Because like I, I kind of you know just upskilled a lot in these meetings and conversations. I understood like what they're looking for, etc. But this was kind of a payoff, you know, for all the hard work we've done. I think. So how much did they invest? Invested six hundred k, and then like we had a convertible note from the previous one. So like all together was around a million. 
like oh, but then like the investment itself was six hundred k, which was you know like a lot at it. So you have you have money now to to do something with to make your product better. Um, but as you continue growing, what what is happening uh, in terms of the challenges that are pre presenting? When does the golden era of of solo learn um, everything you touch turns to gold? Uh, maybe uh, start to falter just a little bit. 2018, our user growth started to slow down. Not dramatically, we would still get, you know, a decent amount of users every month. The user growth started to slow down and we had no idea how to make money out of it. Like we were totally clueless. We knew we don't want to sell content because that would arm our like retention and engagement metrics a lot because the moment you introduce the like content paywall it was gonna be a disaster. Like we like many would make some money but like most of the users would churn. We also had a lot of user generated content which made charging for content even harder, you know, because it wasn't our content. And there was a lot of goodwill and a lot of love, you know, towards solar and that people would kind of put into like basically the, our platform. So we started thinking about how to monetize and that took us like full two years of exploration and, you know, like trying things out that didn't work and, you know, just trying something again. We were making, you know, like 50K a year, you know, as a result of it. So it was like so small from just ads but like the amount was so small like compared to the user base that we had which were just like no this is not gonna fly and then like we're never gonna be you know one billion you know dollar company yeah what was that process look like and why wasn't it simple at a time every ad tech company that monetized it like that 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 made decent money they weren't monetizing by selling content so basically the content was locked and you had to pay to continue, right? The only applicable example out there was Duolingo because they were a language learning app who were kind of also based on user engagement and retention and an excellent product, but their absolute numbers were much higher. So even if, you know, a very small percentage of users monetized, you know, it would be something as compared to our case, you know, people who wanted to learn to code Versus people who wanted to learn a new language. The Duolingo route wouldn't work because you didn't have the audience size for it or the user size. And the the paywall for content that you would create wouldn't work because you had a lot of user-generated content and it would, like, it, it would feel icky or wouldn't make sense to put that behind a paywall. The core differentiator of the product, which was its engagement and retention. So we couldn't, it, it looked like a gaze the product did. Yeah. Okay. So how do you begin to solve this problem? We did two things in parallel. And I think that was wrong because we had to you know, just do one or the other. But and as usual, we kind of jumped. One is we started building subscriptions, you know, with some extra features and, you know, the classics, like let's at least make, you know, we build the ads and then we build the subscriptions with like, a little bit of extra functionality just to see if it, you know, brings anything and what percentage of the user base we can monetize. We also had the ability to kind of build like a full kind of coder profile around the persona. It wasn't just what you learned, but it was also your social activities. You know, we even came up with the employability score, like as, as a result of kind of looking at their academic performance, but also like the social like activity of the platform. So we built kind of a side product, an MVP of a side product that would like we have this many million users and you know, like if you want access to top 1%, like let's talk. And that's also great for the users too, because then it's like by using our app, you have a chance at employment at like one of these companies. Exactly. And that was the whole thing. Like, you have your coder profile that is integrated with LinkedIn and GitHub, and you kind of have the complete portfolio as a user that you can present to the company. But that didn't work out, you know? Why I, not? That's such a cool idea. It's such a cool idea, but then unless you try it, you know, you, 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 you don't learn. You know, it was very hard to sell, first of all. 
because the market was looking for more experienced, you know, and more skilled development talent. And we mostly had beginners. The best ones would let the job without us. They didn't need our support. So like we had this, you know, great profiles, like 100 great profiles until we pitched it to a company, you know, five of them who were the best already landed a job because the industry is super competitive. And, you know, the, the sales cycle was super long. It was just very hard to sustain. And I just realized that yeah, you, you are either a product company, you know, or you're a sales company or you're a marketing company. We were so not a sales company. Though, like, we put so much energy into, you know, like the sales ourselves, like the founders, that we had some success stories. But that meant, like, we were, we should have kind of pivot and, and like, scale the company in a very different direction. Well, yeah. I mean, you would be, that would be scaling it towards recruiting almost, right? Exactly. And then, like, yeah, the product excellence wouldn't matter anymore. And that was our DNA, you know, like, the great product that teach everyone how to code. And the other part was the subscriptions, basically, right? Build the subscriptions and figure out a way uh, to grow the user base. And that's where it kind of, you know, like 2020, our subscription started to work. So we found a way to monetize, you know, additional content in a way that it wouldn't break your experience in terms of you could still learn for free, but it took us like two years of exploration and trying different things in the product, outside the product. You need the right foundation to be able to build on it, but to find the right foundation, you know, take, at least it took us, you know, many iterations and many experiments and many, you know, just, you know, out of the box thinking that never materialized and you know, became something. Like for the first time we've been seeing, you know, revenue numbers going up month over month. Do you have any philosophies or have you learned anything about how you how to find the things that work more quickly and then how to make sure you're capitalizing on those things for as long as possible until you have to switch to that next thing? Uh, one thing I've learned is never like pivot unless you've explored, you know, everything possible in the area where you're good and you're never going to figure it out at the first attempt. So it takes a lot of iterations to get to the minimum, you know, like required amount of learnings so you can come up with something, you know, smarter that actually works and not losing hope and like staying focused and then having everyone around you focused is kind of a very big precondition to, you know, something kind of moving like the numbers in any direction, you know, it, it, like in any area of the business, like moving the numbers upwards takes a lot of effort and a lot of focus and a lot of learnings because unless you have the learnings, you're not going to come up with anything smart because you need to understand you know, everything in the area to be able to move the needle. And then when it takes all kind of, the, you know, it, it's all about optimization and that's when it becomes kind of. Well, not easy, but like more predictable because you kind of have all the data and you know the user behavior and you can kind of do the analysis and kind of move in that direction. I think that's excellent advice. So going to today, where is Solo Learn? What uh what are you working on today and what are you looking towards for the future? Yeah, we've gone like through kind of being this, you know, small team of people who are doing things really fast and, you know, just smart because they've been doing it for a long time and, you know, like efficient to a place where company building, you know, has become a much bigger priority. And it's even harder because we've scaled internationally. We have become fully remote, you know, and the needs of the business have changed because it's, not only about user growth, it's not. It's also about, you know, building the prerequisites for the next wave of growth that will probably come, you know, 12 months from now, right? The problems that you're dealing with on a daily basis kind of, you know, just turn upside down because whatever you're used to is not the case anymore. You're not someone who rolls up the sleeves like and, and just fixes the problems, though I love doing that, but like you need to think kind of very differently. You need to build the right culture. You know, you need to understand people, though many of them you haven't seen in person and you haven't worked with them, you know, just you, you haven't been 
next to each other solving a problem. So that opens up, you know, a very different kind of challenge, like as a founder. And that's where you kind of, you know, just get used to something that doesn't work anymore. And you need a skill set that you don't have yet. How do you think about this new skill set you're developing? And how do you actually learn it? It's very hard. Like, there are a couple things that, like, looking back, like, one is having, you know, a great leadership team. Because you cannot do it alone. And, and you know, the, the message needs to cascade down and the message needs not to change, you know, from one layer to another. So it needs to be a very consistent, this is who we are. And this is what we do. And this is why we do these things. And th- this is why these are the priorities. And then the second thing that resonates with people a lot and resonates with me a lot as well is you should never stop being authentic and try to kind of, you know, import things from like other companies or, you know, other kind of places that are not who you are or what you are, because it becomes fake really quickly. So you've got to find a way to communicate that is authentic to the company, to whatever it is, to whatever it has achieved, and to whatever it is inspires to be. Because we're very early in our journey, I think, like with a lot kind of like to grow toward. But then that like some sort of a cascade of a very aligned like messaging, along with you know like very authentic like way of running a company. In a way, like you don't play games, you know, you just say whatever you think, and then everyone can say whatever they think. I think that builds the bar, like the barriers of formality a lot, and that kind of, you know, just opens up people's mind to some extent. So they want to learn more and they are more interested in, you know, the mission and, and like what we're trying to achieve here. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wang, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Tiffany Dang. And Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.